As we come to God's word, please remain standing. The scripture passage for this morning will be from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I'll be reading the first 10 verses. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 through 10. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is God's word. Amen. Please be seated. Well, thank you very much, uh, Pastor Kurt. And as we come now to God's word, let's bow our heads in prayer together. Let's, let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you for all the encouragement we've already had this morning, hearing about the ministry of Emmanuel and the, the um, multi-nations fellowship, uh, the songs that have lifted our hearts and minds to the good news of the kingdom. Uh, we're thankful, thankful for all this encouragement. And as we come now to your word, we pray that it would encourage us as well. Would you lift us? and inspire us, help us to see the good news. And uh, we pray, Lord, that we would uh, hear and receive your word, Uh, give us ears to hear, hearts to believe. And having received it, we pray, Lord, that you would make us all um, communicators of your word too, to our families, friends, neighborhoods, and so the gospel of the kingdom would make progress. And for all this, we ask for your help, uh, the help of the Holy Spirit, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, if you uh, have a Bible, you'll find it helpful to keep it open. We're beginning a new series in the book of uh, 1 Thessalonians, uh, the first letter of Paul to the uh, Thessalonians. Now, why are we studying this book this morning? The reason why I've chosen this is our new series. We just completed last week our series in the book of Esther. And uh, we were looking at uh, there how we live in exile. 
The reason why I've chosen uh, this series, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, is because it is particularly encouraging. It's, uh, as I said, as I was praying, that we've heard already many encouraging things, and there's much to be encouraged about. And uh, I think we need that sort of message as a society today, in the world around, and in the churches across America, and here at Cottage Church too. There's much to be encouraged about, and it's, it's easy, I think, in these days uh, to be discouraged about church. But actually, there is much to be encouraged about, and First Thessalonians, I hope, will point that out to us and underline it for us. And uh, Paul had uh, many reasons not to be encouraged, and yet he spots what is encouraging. The Thessalonians had been through some real suffering, and he was concerned about them. And so in chapter 3, uh, verse 3, he describes all the afflictions they'd been through. And if you read uh, the story that's the, the backdrop to this in uh, Acts 17, Paul's now writing probably in Corinth about his time in Thessalonia, and there had been a, a riot that had taken place, and one of their church members had been dragged before the authorities, and the whole city was in uproar. So we're talking about significant affliction, suffering, difficulty. And yet, he says, uh, verse 6 of uh, chapter 3, Timothy, one of Paul's key co-laborers, had come to him, in, probably in Corinth, and brought us the good news of your faith and love. So this is, as I say, an encouraging letter. It's the good news about church. The good news about church. And there is much that is good news and encouraging. And in order to uh, send that message of encouragement, uh, Paul constructs the whole letter around things that we know. So when there's much that we do not know as Christians, what we need to have in our mind is what we do know. And there's much uncertainty in our world today. There are many things we do not know. And they also had much uncertainty. So Paul is saying, yes, but this we do know. And over and over again, he's saying, know this, we know this, we know this. And when there's something that they're not sure about, he says, I don't want you to be uninformed. I want you to know. And in particular, throughout the letter, the piece that he wants them to know about is the second coming of Jesus, the coming of the Lord. And so um, when we come across today someone who's feeling a little down, what we often say to them is, don't look down, instead look up. Uh, don't look down at your circumstances, instead look up at uh, God and His sovereignty. And that is a great thing to say to people. But here, Paul is not saying, look up. He's saying, look ahead. Look forward. Not just um, that you'll go to heaven when you die. Not just one day Jesus will return. But look forward to the whole movement of God that's going to culminate, culminate in Jesus' return so that you have hope. And this is what you do know. 
uh, one of the uh, great uh, Christian leaders of yesteryear was a man called Richard Baxter. He was famous for many things. He was a famous preacher. He was a famous pastor. Uh, One of his most well-known books is written about his particular methodology of shepherding people, and it's a standard text book in seminaries, and he's a very famous Christian leader. But Richard Baxter also suffered deeply, and as a result of that suffering, he wrote another hugely well-known book in the the literature uh, called The Saint's Everlasting Rest about uh, heaven and Jesus' return and all that. And the reason why Baxter wrote that is because he discovered when he was suffering that he, the thing that made a difference for him was he determined to spend some time every day thinking about heaven. Now, Paul isn't saying here, think about heaven. What he's saying is, think about what you know about Jesus' return, the coming of the Lord. And that will give you hope and encouragement for now. Not just then, but for now. And he's going to drive that message in over and over again in different ways and about different aspects of that. And the way he's going to drive that in this morning in our first passage is particularly related to church and why we can be encouraged about church And he uses a key word to explain that, and that's the word example, as it's translated in our uh, Bibles. And so uh, he says uh, uh, there in verse 7, so that you became an example to all the believers. They were an exemplary church, but he doesn't mean by that they were perfect. He's not saying um, you're a perfect church, exemplary in that sense. You know, the old joke that's often said, if you find a perfect church, don't join it. You'll only spoil it because there's no perfect people and therefore there are no perfect church. So we must caution ourselves about always thinking the grass is greener on the other side of the fence when it comes to anything in life, but even church life. No, the grass is greener where you water it, not on the other side of the fence. So he's not saying they were the ideal or the perfect church. He has a very particular idea in mind when he says example. And the idea here, the word here in the Greek is of, uh, is of a type. But when we think of type, we think of typing. But the idea here is of an impression, um, a brand. So uh, in in the ancient world, and not that long ago, they would have seals, maybe some wax, and you pressed in a shape, and that became the type, the impression, the brand. And that's why we have brands today, Nike and Coca-Cola and all this, that comes from the idea of putting into a piece of wood or a piece of iron or something like that, or a a, a piece of wax or a seal, a brand. And what he's saying is, you've been branded, you are a type, an example, an impression, and that impression is so powerful that it's created, and we'll look at this at the end, this this sounding forth among all the believers. Now, what is it that creates that kind of 
exemplary or example or branded church? And what kind of brand is it? What kind of impression is it? And how do we get there? Well, Paul says it's really um, two aspects of the relationship between the led and the leaders. It's what we know about you, uh, we here being the uh, Paul and the missionaries, what we know about you, you being the, the, uh, the church in Thessalonia, and then what you know about us, what the people in Thessalonica knew about Paul and the missionaries. So verse 4, he says, for we know, and then he describes what uh, we, that is Paul and the missionaries knew about them. And then in verse 5, he says, and you know, and then he describes uh, what they know about, uh, they knew about them and the impact that had. So when it comes to an example, a brand, a, a big impact that has a huge impact on the surrounding world to all the believers, there is an alchemy of example, and that alchemy is the relationship between the leaders and the people, what we know about you and what you know about us. So first of all, what we know about you. And as I said, it's very encouraging. So verse 2, he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Now think about that, leaders, elders, deacons, missionary leaders, pastors, parents. When you're a leader, it's very easy to always be thinking about the problems that you need to fix. And if you spend all your time thinking about the problems that you need to fix, inevitably you have in your mind when you think about those other people, problem. But that's not Paul's approach. Paul has in his mind thanksgiving. We give thanks to God always. And not only that, for all of you. In any community, in any family, in any church, there are always uh, people who are easier to get along with than uh, other people. And there are people who find you easier to get along with than, uh, than uh, others that they find uh, to get along with. That's always the case. There's always, as they put it in British English, uh, a prickly pear or two in any community. But Paul gives thanks always for all of them, even the prickly pears. We give thanks always for all of you constantly. Now, when Paul talks about his prayer life as something constant, I think he has two ideas in mind. One idea is the, the prayer life that is a, a, a lifestyle, constantly praying, a spirit of prayer. You can pray while you work. You don't have to verbalize audibly your prayers. You can pray in your mind. You can pray while you're um, working, while you're at home. I, I pray for you as I preach to you. I'm praying for you now. You, can, you have different tracks in your minds. And Paul was constantly praying. I think that's one idea he has uh, when he talks about his constant prayer. But the other idea is the old um, biblical tradition of a prayer life in the morning and in the evening. Night and day, morning and evening. I think he, when he says constantly mention you in our prayers, he's talking about his quiet time in the morning and his prayers right before he goes to sleep, and that he's always giving thanks and praying for them at those times as well. 
And uh, what does he uh, give thanks for? Remembering, verse 3, before our God and Father, your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what an interesting triad. Faith, love, and hope. But notice how he describes them. What, what is he grateful for? Their work of faith. Their labor of love. And their steadfastness, that word there has a sense of perseverance, not giving up. Their perseverance, their not giving up of hope. And we tend to think of faith, hope, and love as somewhat passive, an attitude. But biblical Christianity, when it's genuine, the faith always leads to work. If you have faith, you will work. And the love, in biblical Christianity, if it's genuine, will always lead to labor. It's inevitable. Uh, when you know that you're loved by Jesus, you will work hard to love others in practical terms. And the hope, uh, which is the third of the tribe, because throughout this letter Paul was talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus and the hope, so he's putting it there in the third place for emphasis, the hope will always lead to, in biblical Christianity, perseverance, not giving up, keeping on going. And all this uh, leads to uh, why he knows something about them. For, he says, verse 4, so all this is leading to this, for we know. What does he know about them? Brothers or brothers and sisters, it's not a gender-specific term, brothers in the New Testament. It means the family of God. We are a family. You may, have, uh, you may be married, you may not be married. But we are a family. We're brothers and sisters. For we know, brothers and sisters, family, loved by God that he has chosen you. So what he knows is that you are loved and that you are chosen. Why does he know that? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, that is not only as a message, not only as a theory, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Now, that last phrase, full conviction, is a very difficult phrase to translate. And I don't think there's any exact way in the English language to translate it. And I have great sympathy with translators who spend years and decades of their life trying to figure out how to put these things into English. There's no really exact way to translate it. Other places in the New Testament, it's translated as full assurance. Neither can quite carry the meaning of the original. Uh, the idea here in the word is fully carrying. So it's not conviction in the sense of negative conviction of sin, nor is it assurance in the sense of your, you know, be sure, be certain, though it will lead to assurance. The picture is a full carrying. In other words, they have the full load. It's like if you picture a, a truck and it's fully loaded. They, they've got it all. They've got the whole thing. They've got it. That's the idea. So we know that you are loved by uh, God and chosen because the gospel came not only in words or not only in theory, but in power and the Holy Spirit. And they really got it. We know this about you. We know what? That you are loved and that you are chosen 
or elect. It's the same, it's the same idea, chosen or elect. Now, in church life, whenever we uh, think about election, there's always someone in their mind who's thinking, but what about free will? And the answer to that is it depends what you mean by free will. Um, uh, Martin Luther, who held to the same doctrine of this that, that uh, we do here and I do, um, wrote a book on it called The Bondage of the Will, saying there is no free will. And then Jonathan Edwards, basically arguing the same point, wrote a book on it called The Freedom of the Will. Depends what you mean by free will. If you mean by free will that we as individuals have total authority and power to do and decide our own destiny, then I don't think biblically such a thing even exists. The Bible talks about God's will, not our free will. And that's a hard message, I think, for people like you and I who grew up in democracies when we're used to electing other people not being elected. But biblically, there's no such idea as that kind of free will. But if you mean by free will moral responsibility that we genuinely decide, then somewhat mysteriously, and I won't have time to unpack it all, but somewhat mysteriously, those two go together in the biblical thinking. We have responsibility, and yet God is sovereign. Now, let me put it like this for us this morning, and this will tie right back into where we are here when he says we have chosen you. In the Bible, the doctrine of election, or God has chosen you, we know this about you, is never used. I don't think, I've never discovered ever used in the whole Bible. The doctrine of election is never used as a message to the non-Christian. So if you're a skeptic here this morning, you're a seeker, you're welcome but the doctrine of election is never preached as a message to the non-Christian. The message is never, some people are elect, some people are not, and uh, who knows whether you are. It's never preached that way. The doctrine of election is only ever preached in the New Testament the way it is here, which is a message of confidence and certainty and, yes, assurance to the Christian. He loves you. He chose you, and therefore you can be encouraged. You've got the full load, everything. That's always how the doctrine is preached. Now, you say, well, how does that work? And I'm going to use an illustration that I've used before, and I make no, I'm not embarrassed to use it again because it is such a good one, and it's not only a good one. It was D.L. Moody's illustration, by the way, no relation in case anyone writes me an email about that afterwards, but... Um, and the reason why I think it's helpful to know it was D.L. Moody's illustration is because D.L. Moody in Christian circles is never known for pushing the doctrine of election. He's a, a very accessible evangelist, got a reputation. But this is his illustration. And so look at it like this way. Um, you're standing uh, before a door, and written above the doorway is the Bible text, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And uh, you read that text, and you're invited. Yes, non-Christian, skeptic, come to Jesus this morning, he says. You who are weary and heavy laden with guilt and sin and discouragement, 
and he will give you rest. You hear that message. You say yes to it. You make a choice. You decide. You need to decide. It's your choice. And you go through the door. Well, then you look back uh, through the door you've gone through, and you look at the doorway behind you, and you notice there's a text above the doorway that you've just gone through, and it says, for since before the creation of the world, I have known you. You are elect. He loves you, and he chose you. And that's the way the message is always preached. So when he's saying here, we know about you, what he's saying is this, college church, uh, the leaders of the church, um, the missionary leaders, the pastors, the elders, this is what we know about you. You are loved. You are chosen. He loves you. He chose you. We know this about you. Now, that's one side of this amazing example, this impression, this brand. There's the alchemy of the example, the relationship between the leaders and those who are being led. But there's another side to it, and I'll take this somewhat more uh, briefly looking at the time. Um, The other side to it is what you know about us. And this uh, carries on from verse 5. He says there, you know what kind of men. Again, uh, I have great empathy for the translators in this passage. Very difficult phrase to translate. I'll I'll try and bring out the, uh, the meaning in it. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And then he goes on, you became, because they know that, you imitators of us. Verse 6 and then verse 7, so that you became an example, a type, a brand, an impression to all these other people. Now what Paul is saying here is what you, that is the, the people in Thessalonia, know about Paul and the missionaries, and he's using throughout the letter we because he wants it to be clear that though he's the apostle, he wants the, the Thessalonians to have a relationship, a close relationship not only to him but also to Silvanus and Timothy and the whole leadership team. So the pastors, the elders, the whole, the whole uh, pastoral team, what you know about us, what is that? What he's saying is, you know that we were among you for you. So what he's saying here is not simply that um, uh, the, uh, the missionaries hang out, hung out with the Thessalonians over cups of coffee and spent a lot of time sort of as extroverts in relationship. He's not simply just saying that kind of thing. What he's saying is, you know about us that we are among you for you. And that idea of for you has almost a um, um, resonance with the way that Jesus died for us in our place instead of us. Similarly, he's saying, these missionaries, you know, they were among you for you. So in other words, uh, you know that they were not there to make a lot of money. Uh, Paul and the missionaries made no money. They were not there to make a lot of money. You know that. Uh, You also know they were not there to get famous. Um, They were not there to build up their Twitter followers. No, they were among you 
for you. And this is the other side of this, uh, this alchemy of the relationship between the leaders and the led in a church that has this, this impression, this brand. Well, the brand, then, then we must say, what is the brand? The brand is Jesus. They are among you for you. And you're chosen and loved by God. And that's the example. And so, of course, uh, that means that um, leaders of churches need to be like that, among you, for you, giving their lives for you. And also means those who led need to know that and think that way. The elders, the pastors, uh, the missionaries are among you, for you. And when you have that, you see, then you have this example. And what Paul says about this, and this is the, the, the final impact of it that we'll conclude with, what he says is, it sounded forth, which is a, not a phrase I, anyway, use in everyday language. Perhaps you do, but I don't. So verse 8, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth, um, it's also sounded forth everywhere. Uh, not only among all the believers, but everywhere. And Paul is probably slightly exaggerating in the sense he's not saying that someone in South America had heard about the church in Thessalonia. What he's saying is there's this huge sounding forth. And the idea there in that, in that phrase is of a noise that is out there. So they're making a big impact. There's a big noise and it's out there. And that's what happens when the church has this example, this type, this impression from the relationship of the leaders to the led, what we know about you, loved by God, chosen by him, what you know about us, that we're among you, for you. When that's the case, the impression that is created, that everyone sees and begins to grasp, what's the impression? Jesus. And so church, you say, well, why go to church? Because church is not a religious club for the converted. Church is an example, a type, an impression in this world of Jesus. And so it's greatly encouraging, I think, because as we think about Cottage Church in particular... I think we are that example. We heard from Emmanuel, what an extraordinary thing. And that's, there's so many other ministries going on, we can't have them all up on the platform every week, otherwise there'd be no time for anything else. But there's so much of that going on, uh, internationally as well, everywhere, not just uh, locally and regionally, but everywhere. It's very encouraging that we are that kind of example. And, of course, it's also an exhortation uh, that uh, with this alchemy of the example, the relationships between the leaders and the led, what we know about you, loved by God, chosen by God, what you know about us, that we're among you for you. Exhortation to be more and more like that so that we can more and more be a brand of Jesus, an impression of Jesus, an example of Jesus. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord God, we do thank you for um, the, uh, this letter. We thank you for how encouraging it is. 
And we pray, Lord, that uh, as we face things we don't know, that we would lean on what we do know. And in particular this morning, uh, we pray that we lean on what um, we know about you and what you know about us as we think about the relationships in this church. We pray, Lord, for the elders, the pastors, that uh, they would know that uh, the people in this church are loved and chosen. And that would be the forefront of their minds. And we pray, Lord, for all the congregants, the members, the attenders, the regular attenders, those who are just coming this morning, that what they would know about the elders, the pastors, the leaders of the church is that they are among us, for us. And this way, Lord, we pray that increasingly, we're thankful, Lord, that we are this, we believe as a church already, an example of Jesus, we pray that increasingly we would be so. Oh, Lord, that uh, we would uh, sound forth in Chicagoland and all around the world. We would make a big noise out there because of this example. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.